does anything in the weight room really transfer to the field? No. But I guess, like you could you could make some arguments that like, but I, I would I it, say it no. might build context and a slight nudge on transference, you know, depending on what you're doing, what plane you're doing it in, or so on and so forth. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. Too much boring stuff out there? That's what we're here to do. We're here to fix that. This week's guest is Dan Path. So you know it's not going to be boring. You know you're going to be entertained. We talked with Dan about uh, why team sport athletes would do three-point or four-point sprints. We talked about is it even worth it using speed drills to teach frontside mechanics for your team sport athletes because – Obviously, sprinting is different for a team sport athlete versus a track and field athlete. We talk about why he got out of college strength and conditioning. It's, like I said, it's Dan Path. So you're going to enjoy this episode. Make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you enjoy. Let us know your thoughts down in the comments so that way we can continue to give you the content you want to hear. But without further ado, I'm going to stop talking now so you can listen to Dan Path talk because that's why you clicked. Later. My very first question for you is kind of just talking about this notion. I feel like speed has become the new cool thing to do in team sports. And in your opinion, um, is this or is is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Knowing the fact that practice doesn't make perfect, it makes it permanent. Are we going to get kids good at running fast? Or are we just going to get them good at doing um, a bastardized version of what people see in some of the Alta stuff? Well, I, I think it starts with an ergonomic analysis with the athlete before you, you know, where are they deficient? Where do they have gaps and strengths? And uh, I, I think running is an essential foundational movement in team sports. So if you don't know the ABCs of starting and accelerating and running <laughs> upright, you're already behind the eight ball, eh? Yeah. So I, I'm continually amazed I get professional athletes that come to me on a return to play and no one's ever taught them the ABCs of running. They, they don't even know what the components are, or, you know, what, what good is versus bad and, and why it might not be good. Now, with any of our listeners out there, what are you calling the ABCs? Are you literally talking talking the fact of like projection rhythm rise? Are you talking? Yeah, uh, so some of those things, contact length, segmental positions, postures. Uh, movement expression. <clears throat> so we, we know when people accelerate, whether it's curved linear or linear, the contact times lessen as you get faster and airtime increases and attack angles change according to acceleration. And stride length and stride frequency generally grow together. <clears throat> now, the context is, are you accelerating over three yards, 10 yards, 20 yards? And that, that changes the equation a little bit, but still, those heuristics or first principles have to be addressed. I mean, those are foundational tenets of, of movement or gait. Oh, 100%. And when you're working with these team, <clears throat> when you're working with the different team sport athletes, you talked, you know, before about basketball, how how extensively in those ABCs do you get with those sports where the court is shorter, They they might be having the limited expression of speed you know a lot of basketball coaches will say they don't need to work on it like how, how do you go about educating them well 
always get the question, why would you change something? So if I've hit a performance ceiling or I got a performance plateau or my injury list is growing or whatnot, it might be hoove us to look into how they're running. <clears throat> I think most team sport coaches uh, talk about first step. You know, they, they got a great first step. Mm. Well, to me, that's starting. That's overcoming stationary inert or inertia and, and creating a solid excursion angle on that first step. So how are they doing that? That might be a starting spot. You know, what do their first two steps look like? Or in a change in direction, how are people reaccelerating after the apex of the change? So these principles are still going to be there. If you got a wide receiver and he's doing a post pattern, when he cuts 45 degrees, he's somewhat having to reaccelerate out of that cut. So what's mm -hmm. going on uh, kinematically and kinetically, you know, during those steps? <clears throat> Within that context, do you think that sticking with that like football player ex example, do you think that there are are coaches trying to speed it up and get their athletes to be able to do things that they shouldn't be doing because in high school their athletes are doing speed work and, and routes and things that they should not have been doing, or is is the whole process just completely being bastardized and too rushed? I think that's a, a very complex and layered question, probably. So is there training bias? Yes. So people can overcook certain ideas, certain principles or whatnot, and that can create chaos later down the road. Uh, you know, you might be able to get away with X, Y, and Z. In high school, you go to university, everybody's fast. So you, maybe you have to upgrade those skills. You go to the NFL, it's an even more select uh population that you're dealing with. So I, I, I think people get too caught up on the biomechanical model. I, I think there are certain movements and positions and whatnot that good movers exhibit and poor movers don't exhibit. Now there's some bandwidth depending on environment, stage of uh, development, so on and so forth. But you're not going to see anybody running really fast with zero knee lift. You're not going to see anybody running really fast with huge backside lag and mechanics behind them. <clears throat> You're not going to see anybody running fast with their elbows straight or their elbows like they're a marathon jogger. People do certain things if they're moving fast and moving well that <clears throat> kind of have a bandwidth to them. And and I'm not I'm not going to buy into the troop. Well, just let them figure it out because I'm working with age age group kids all the time, and that let them figure it out. Shit isn't working. Um, talking about that, one of the things that came into my head is a former colleague of mine who was a track athlete now works with basketball and track. We'll talk about the notion that doing actual speed mechanic work with team sport athletes is not the juice is not worth the squeeze because they don't get exposed to it long enough to actually make changes over time do you agree with that and it, or disagree and if so why well i i would disagree i think people can make changes now do you microdoses and the warm-ups or microdoses into the early session? Do you allow for it in, in the practice session or whatnot? So like in the NFL, we have a lot of our guys do three or four hard excels at the end of their warm-up before they go to individuals. So they microdose acceleration. 
uh, Wednesday on the first heavy day of practice on early in the session, a few of the plays, they run it out a little bit longer than normal so they can touch speed. So I think folks in that camp are probably disregarding the power of microdosing. I 100% agree with you, especially if, uh, if you're looking at like, let's say a college athlete where you know you should have them for at least three years, um, unless it's a basketball player and they leave after one. But most team sport athletes, you have three to five years to work it. And like you said, every exposure in your warmup is an opportunity to coach it and have them do those drills and continue to um, ingrain and refine the process. So it's nice to, yeah. Well, I, I think also that, I think people undervalue the ergonomic analysis. So is this kid stuck in an output syndrome? Like first step, they just aren't getting any better or third step, they're not getting there any faster or the chronic injury list is growing. You know, we got to look at that. And if running might be a variable in that process, then why not teach it? As you said that, that made me think about one of the videos that I've watched from you before where you talked about somebody with chronic um, Achilles pain resulting from the contralateral shoulder. How long did that take for you to start to figure out and diagnose and be able to see in either real time or slow time? And then what was kind of that aha moment for you to be able to give to the coaches that are listening to this? Well, we were working uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in ice hockey, and uh, Dr. Anthony Mash, a sport radiologist, was one of the guys in our network, and, and they battle sports hernia and adductor issues and all of that, you know, really extreme in ice hockey. So he was looking at MRIs, you know, in that area, like a good radiologist to do. But he was also, you know, these guys were having, contra, you know, neck injuries, shoulder injuries, and he started to see a pattern there, the opposite shoulder was really uh, damaged or dysfunctional to the contralateral side where the leg injuries were occurring. So that started us looking into that theme of what else, where else. So I think that's a problem we got in sports medicine, a return to play, we get myopic and we're treating the shit out of the area of complaint or injury, and we're not looking upstream or downstream or contralateral. And I remember you saying that where it was like, if you find a therapist that is not only like you, uh, I think it was if the therapist is only treating the area that is bothering you, not the area up and downstream, you need to go find a new therapist, not right away, like leave the session, right? It, that yeah, is, what... or, or, or maybe ask the therapist to upskill his education. Yeah. And for me, hearing that, um, that going back to, you know, Chinese medicine, um, what, like, again, just, why that shoulder as opposed to the hip um like it, and do you find it more the shoulder or the hip that on that contralateral side in what you found well i think shoulder hip relationships are we're seeing big trends and patterns in a lot of this dysfunction so baseball pitchers with rotator cuff injuries or collateral ulnar collateral elbow injuries we always see stuff going on in the left hip if they're right-handed left spine, you know, sacral ilium movement. I think the future is going to be in this fascial work that's being done by the Steckos in Italy, uh, Schlepp in all Germany, Voyer in Paris, and some of the Thomas Myers things about, we don't really know these fascial trains and how they're affecting movement. And, and that's another complaint I have in, in PT or return to play. We're treating muscles and bones and ligaments and tendons pretty well 
but we're totally ignorant on what to do with fascia and, and the hydraulics and the fluid dynamics of, of the body. What have you been learning more about the fascial system in the last, let's say, two to three years? Just how interconnected it is and how fluid dynamics uh, operate within that system. And of course, you at the molecular level, you look at collagen, collagen synthesis. So like Keith Barr's doing some really cool work on tendon rehab and, you know, in his lab and how to treat it, what kind of exercises, supplementation, and so on and so forth. Ten years ago, nobody was doing that kind of work. So fascia is probably a young science. I think the International Fascia Society meetings 25 years old and some of it's limited by uh technology so like the stecos do use floppy cadavers so if you're working experimenting and and whatnot with a embalmed cadaver versus a floppy cadaver it's apples and oranges because the floppy cadaver is showing some of the fluid dynamic principles where an embalmed cadaver you, you're just dealing with stiff meat that's <laughs> That's some next level stuff right there. Hearing you say that one. Um, well, I got people in my network way smarter than me. I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to claim to be a histologist here. Um, all right, changing changing gears to one of the questions. Hey, one, one thing I'd like to pump in here on the earlier. Go ahead, stuff. please. So we're doing all this acceleration, upright running, and all of that. But what are we doing on the change in direction thing? Talk about it. I mean, I just so, had, I was just talking about it with Les. Yeah, all gas, no brakes is not a great equation, right? No. So, you know, guys in my network, like uh, Damien Harper in the UK, Tom DeSantos in the UK, Lauren Landau has been doing this for two decades, uh, Tim Paylott at the USOC. You know, these people are doing pioneering work on change in direction, training, body adaptation, and so on and so forth. So... You know, if we talk about excursion angle on a start or first step or acceleration position, segmental work and movement pathways, we, we've done the go faster bit to death. But then when it slow down, how far do you put the feet in front or the center mass? You know, what kind of body position? How do we lower the hips in a uniform manner? You know, do these people have the capability to do like a five-yard blast stop, 10-yard blast stop, five-yard flare? five-yard pivot, so on and so forth. We're not analyzing those abilities. So we're analyzing the acceleration and the running abilities to death, but it's early days on the change in direction stuff. And I think that's where we got a little bit of an imbalance. <clears throat> now, would you 100% subscribe to the notion that you can get somebody faster by teaching them how to stop better? Yes. And now going down that hole, do you think the limited notion is in the fact that it's easier to assess and measure how well someone's accelerating and running at top speed. And maybe that's why we're not doing it. Uh, I mean, even if you went with barnyard stuff that I do, like, you know, what, what is like at contact mid stance toe off, just looking at body segments on good movers and bad movers, whether they're accelerating or changing direction, you can get actionable data and information and, and action points from just simple measurements so in terms of you know acceleration and max velocity we're looking at you know toe off max uh mvp uh strike touchdown and full support what were you using 
it, for any of our uh, listeners out there that are familiar with, you know, kinematics, um, what would be the same landmark images that you're looking at when people are changing direction? Well, the first and foremost is posture. So looking at the longitudinal axis and how these body segments. So when we decelerate, there's more of a hip hinge, right? Mm -hmm. So the torso is undergoing some kind of deformation into a greater hip hinge. And that's where we get the ACLs. People don't hip hinge. They actually lay back, step lateral bone because they're unaware of how to close the torso down. Center of mass lowering. How is it lowering? Contact point in front of the center of mass. So touchdown distance. In good movers, we see certain unique patterns depending on speed. So Danian Harper has some really good stuff on like five yard stops, 10 yard stops, 15 yard stops and how these segmental positions are occurring in decelerated movement. Is he teaching now? I'm asking because I'm not familiar with it. Is he like, <clears throat> all right, within that, you know, five yards, it's going to be easier to stop than the 10, 15, 20. We understand that. How is this stopping being taught? Is it taught, you know, chopping the feet, stop however you have to stop? Um, that's no. the first question. No. So, you know, they're looking at, again, it's kind of doing inter-athlete study. So whether it's rugby or European football or basketball or whatnot, they're looking at people that decelerate really well. Really, like only you're selecting the best athletes from those sports or? Across the board, academy level, elite, Olympic level or whatever. And you, you, you get a general pattern, you know. So one thing we know that people decelerate really well, they lower their center mass. Mm-hmm. Well, how do they do that? And what's the rate of lowering? What's the slope of lowering? You can start to see trends and patterns. People generally put their foot out in front of themselves a little bit. So to increase braking forces, how much and how, what is the foot orientation when it strikes the ground? And how is that foot placement, that touchdown distance interfacing with torso collapse or torso closure? So looking at those interrelationships. How much of this is worried about coming to a complete stop or coming to a deceleration followed by another rapid acceleration? Yeah. So they're doing work 45 degree cut, 90 degree cut, 180 pivot. You know, they're, they're looking at all of those movement schemes. <clears throat> and those, those are in closed chain environments. And then you slowly segue into more open chain dynamic environments. So they're trying to see, okay, these guys are really good at closed chain testing and monitoring whatnot. What are they like when it becomes more of a cognitive puzzle? And what we see is people in game situations that are good decelerators exhibit a lot of the same qualities they exhibit in closed chain. <clears throat> My next question that I wrote down as you were talking about all that was what were some of the ways that they control for the fact of making sure like, okay, you're actually running the five yards or the 10 yards or the 15 rather than short changing it and knowing like, okay, I got to stop coming up. I'm not going to run as fast as I actually can. Yeah. Uh, I, I would encourage people to get into some of Damien's research and uh, Tom Dos Santos. They, they have some really good web pages and blogs on this and they do a lot of courses. I think it's like, I, I think it's like any other menu item that you're developing, you know, you, you build in safeguards or constructs to ensure that people are doing it. So one way is to, to use lasers, you know, are they running the right speed? 
uh, you know, GPS is probably too too global on a lot of the short change in direction stuff. So GPS probably, if you have accelerometers or IMUs, you know, that would be a really good way. The quickest way is laser. Mm. Uh, View Motion, uh, a group out of uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, actually has video capability to measure a lot of these variables. Are they measuring, you know, even to... Uh drf off of that change in direction like what's the orientation yeah. vertical and oh wow wow and so are they able to to show that like the best athletes are getting you know is it still 45 is it 50 like what are they what are the best exhibiting without i mean if you're not allowed to talk about it because it's all proprietary or whatever no i i mean it's still in uh the change in direction stuff view motion still in beta because they're doing machine learning and ai so they're collecting huge reams of data you know a to validate the measuring accuracy reliability and validity but also to, to then see trends and patterns over time as they get the better as these athletes that you know they've been working with and you've been working with get better at the physical capability of it this is making me think about some conversations i've had with jeff moyer about the perception action coupling part of it and you know the ooda loop and seeing what's going on how does that get taken into account with all of this well <clears throat> That's where it gets tricky. So how do you design sessions or testing batteries or whatnot that are more open chain that have a higher cognitive perceptual demand? But yet are that? also reliable and repeatable. Yeah. So the minute you make it more open chain, now you have more variables, right? So <laughs> and you're trying to do science and you're like, okay, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> But I, I, I can give you a case study one. I work at the MLS Academy here in Austin. So, you know, we're doing various change in direction educational pieces and warm ups and weight room stations and, and what have you. And we're kind of measuring people on close chain activities and very, very radical changes and improvement on these kids, just learning the ABCs of various close chain activities. Now, is that translating to the game? Well, we won't know until the end of the season where we're measuring, you know, play on the field. How do you measure success in that aspect? Because I've heard people talking of, you know, the typical KPIs of 5105, L drill, any of that stuff. But I've also heard some pretty forward thinking coaches of uh, in the sport of American football um, tackles made or tackles missed if you're a running back or a receiver or um, the ability in basketball to, you know, get get into the lane, dribble, dribble, penetrate. Are those some things that you've been advising people to look on? And if not, what are some of the other ones? Yeah, well, I think this comes down to, you know, what I call backroom work, you know, so how are these people cutting up game tapes or practice tapes and are they looking at some of these variables. So you can get game tapes and measure first step distance and rate of speed and whatnot, so you can measure first step you can measure first step on a straight start and a cutting step or all of that so I think with some work in the back room, you can measure some of these qualities. <clears throat> any so, other yeah go ahead so, you, go, you, you know go, it's please. it's not perfect and it's not going to give you a shitload of insight right now but it's a start in the process and you know my my comment it's better than zero oh 100 agreed and 
as I mean, one of the questions that I was going to ask later is the fact that in team sports, you don't necessarily always want to get that knee overly high because of the fact that you have the need to put the foot back in the ground and change direction. And I was going to talk with you about how that affects the way that you go and talk with any of these other coaches or people that you work with, knowing that maybe they've almost screwed it up because they watched one too many things and didn't hear that talk from you. And they're having all of this overly frontside mechanics. Like, so, you know, I think it is very important for us to talk about this for our listeners to hear about that. Well, I think the first part is, does the athlete have a toolbox to control body segments? Mm. So can the athlete feel the difference between 10 degree knee lift 30 and 90? Well, that might be important because there's a certain uh, degree of knee lift that you would need for certain movement tasks in the game. Can the athlete feel posture? Are they leaning back? Are they leaning excessive laterally or leaning excessive forward? You know, posture awareness might be an important variable, whether it's closed or open chain, accelerating or decelerating. You know, arm swing and arm positioning, you know, would be another variable. Do you know where your arm's out in space? Do you know how to change your arms, you know, as task changes? So your arms might be doing a certain movement expression uh, during acceleration or in cutting, but if you're running upright 40 yards down the field, you better know how to change your arm mechanics away from what you were doing in acceleration zones or in cutting zones. So for me, the first part is body awareness. Do you know how to manipulate and control body segments? What about the pelvis? How about like... That one I feel like is slight. You might just because you're smart enough are including that in the posture, but I'm thinking pelvic awareness with some of the athletes that I've either worked with or just being in football where I feel like anterior pelvic tilt is just like everybody's dumped forward, right? Well, I think that comes back to that idea of training bias. So these guys do 8,000 starts. Well, the pelvis is an antiversion until you get it's biased to antiversion until you get upright. Mm -hmm. So they're doing 10 billion starts and maybe a dozen upright runs. So we already got an imbalance in training stimuli on muscles, tendons, fascia, ligaments, or whatever. We're biasing the system to antiversion. A lot of kids, you know, when they get upright, they can probably get to a neutral pelvis, but they run forward. Well, that's going to close the pelvis down. So even though they could do it mechanically, they can't because of torso position. So, you know, people that over push and overreach generally have excessive anterior tilt. They don't know how to undulate the ilium. I think there's this misnomer that's gotten out there on neutral pelvis. It kind of drives me crazy. So when you <laughs> tow off, you have an antiversion of the ilium on that side. And then as the legs recovering, the ilium goes more neutral. And then as the leg opens up and sweeps back, the ilium actually goes into some degree of retroversion. So the ilium is a dynamic movement structure. It's not static. And a lot of times people say, well, in the start, it's anterior. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's in line with everything. And it, it, the reason it's tilted is because we're the entire system's tilted. So as we start and come upright, the ilium should come under you. If mm. it doesn't, then you got anterior bias. 
Yeah. Or you have, like you said, or you're running with your chest completely dropped forward and now you're not getting your front yeah. time. So I had an NBA puzzle, uh, three bigs on a team, bilateral Achilles tendinopathy racked. One guy missed a lot of games. One guy was couldn't play late in the game. Another guy was all over the map. They sent me a spreadsheet with 50 tabs, like force platform data and, you know, drop jump data and clinic data and what they were doing and MRIs and ultrasound scans. Like, it did my head in there so many tech so i just wrote back and i'm like i'm not smart enough to figure out all these tabs and see a pattern can you do me a favor sure film these guys running baseline to midcourt just have them do a build-up you know don't put any stress on them. just say i want you to run from the baseline to midcourt in a build-up manner whatever that means to them okay we can do that i said i need three views something film from behind something head on and something from the side because rear and front shows you a lot of rotational stuff that's going on in the segments. The side view is kind of biased planar analysis. So they sent this video, and all three guys are running hugely hip, hit, like they were bent over at 45 degrees no matter where they were at on the run. Well, if you got that much center of mass over rotation, you're going to put your foot out in front of you to keep from falling. Yeah, be able to run, be able to move. So I just sent back a note. I said, the best intervention you got is teach these guys how to run. What do you say? Or... Yeah, the, well, they did. And two of the three got better. And the third guy wouldn't uh, have anything to do with it. He stayed injured. It was pretty simple. That's it. really interesting to hear, especially in the sport of basketball, because I don't know. I don't know why that sparks my brain thinking about, like, just that hunched over posture of, just trying to get up and down the court, maybe. Like, could it have been not only well, Here's the ergonomic failure. If you're on a fast break, say you're caught on the baseline and you're on a fast break and you're going to go to the other end of the goal, there's mm -hmm. going to be a few steps in the middle of the court where you should be upright. Agreed. Like, maybe you kind of drop your chest and you have that initial takeoff, but then you're a team sport athlete. You have to get to max V sooner. So you're going to be very darn near it, right? Well, do they know how to do that? Are their muscle systems fascial train, trained to allow them to do that? The For these big don't. guys, they were so anteriorly drawn and addicted to forward posture, there was no motivation to stand up at midcourt. Well, then you could even say too, like this this will kind of go full circle back into your to what you're saying about the ability to decelerate because maybe they're not getting into it because they don't trust themselves to decelerate at the time that they maybe need. If they're on offense, they have to score or if they have to decelerate and try and go play transition defense. So they just never do it. Well, you know, I don't want to be the uh, shit stirrer today, but a lot of these shoes are pretty uh, poor. You know, oh, we, we, you know, we've all seen shoes that blew up on guys, you know, playing the game. Yeah. Well, if your foot's moving that crazy on a D cell, are you going to really run fast? Oh, no, not at all. That would then make people start talking about the differences like basketball courts. They're all the same. And you're going to know this better than I would. But basketball courts are all the same surface. But in the sport of football, American football, you're playing on artificial turf or grass, right? Well, it's a nightmare. I, I, I kind of do some uh, interface with the NFL Player Safety Commission, and they're looking at shoes and surface interface. And so these, these modern shoes with carbon plates and carbon rods and unique spike patterns and upper design and what have you, 
there's an explosion of foot injuries, stress fractures, Liz Frank, Jones fractures. I mean, it's just going through the roof and you got people on ProTurf, you know, various types of synthetics. You got different types of grass. Is it a dry field, a wet field? Nobody's really doing a lot of thought on shoe surface interface. Is the appropriate shoe for the appropriate surface? So we saw in the playoffs one team that was falling all over the place because the whole team had the wrong shoes for that surface. I won't say which team and which yeah. playoff game, but it was pretty obvious. <laughs> well, hearing you say that, like, it's interesting for you to say that about the shoe foot interface, because as a strength coach, I was instantly thinking like, okay, is it because of the demands of the season? Is it because they were gone? Like, okay, if the spike in injuries occur in training camp because volume went up and athletes were gone for a while, that's the recipe for disaster. But you know, you're also saying hypothetically, it's the shoe interface with the the ground. And I guess I never gave that enough thought. And I wonder if our listeners did too. So I, I did a consult with a division one football school, a lot of uh, sesamoid injuries, uh, like uh, 38 high ankle sprains during spring camp. My goodness. So I went up and spent a few days and then watching. So the first thing that stood out, their indoor field had a granulate surface pro-turf. The artificial field outside had, you know, a bamboo granulate surface. And they had two grass fields. One was fescue and one was uh, Bermuda. So four different surfaces. Well, the players wore the same shoe no matter what surface. So a lot of times they might warm up indoors because of thunderstorm go outdoors to a practice pitch, the lineman went over to a grass pitch. All these guys were in the same shoe. Might not be the best call. What is that? If I, like you've definitely teased it. Like, I mean, you work it in, you work it in shoe sales right now. Cause anybody listening is going to definitely be interested. Well, I'd love to tell you, there's a company I'd really recommend, but most companies design shoes that are lighter or have some unique, uh, catch and guys are all in you know so you know like track and field these carbon plates have taken it by storm and destroyed all the records and and now we're getting all kinds of unique injuries because there's no free lunch with carbon carbon allows forces to transmit faster and a greater magnitude in a shorter period of time well there's 26 bones in the foot that should be playing a nice piano concerto and now you got one big rod or lever through there um Bad force has got to go somewhere. And shoes and are getting. Oh, go, go. Sorry. If it isn't, if they aren't getting hit in the foot, maybe it's in the ankle, the retinaculum, tarsal tunnel, sinus tarsi, Achilles. It might go upstream to the knee, it might go up to the hip. So we're seeing hip labral injuries and knee cartilage injuries in middle distance runners like crazy mm. numbers we've never seen in 50 years of coaching. That's interesting because that was going to be my question. Is that what you're starting to see now in in track and field that there there are more foot injuries as well? Yeah. How, how are the surfaces it, there changing right. or what? Surfaces are changing a little bit, but not at the rate that the shoe technology has changed. Spikes are they staying the same too? No, they they've gone carbon and designers. So some companies have a short carbon plate, some have a long, some have carbon rods, some have carbon reinforcement around the spike itself some have different site uh stack heights so they're using synthetic foams to change the rocker angle i mean it's an engineer uh pandora's box right now on track and field 
what about the depth of the actual spike, whether it be in American football, rugby, or in track and field? Does that it, matter? It, it's a very track and field. We're pretty tight on the limit, but in uh, field court, field sports, there really isn't a lot of rules. Oh, really? I did not know that. Um, <clears throat> speaking of track and field and speaking of team sport athletes, how important do you think it is for football, uh, rugby, soccer, any of these lacrosses, field sport athletes to be doing any work out of either a three-point or a four-point stance rather than just in a two-point from what they'd be playing in their field with? Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of biased to build a big toolbox, a deep toolbox with a lot of layers. So for me, if a person truly understands the dynamics of starting and accelerating, they can do it out of a variety of stances, you know, one knee, two knee, push up, three point, four point or whatever, they should be able to do the ABCs no matter what the initial starting posture is. And to me, if, if they've mastered a variety of postures of starting and they can still exhibit good movement, then we're way ahead of the game. Touche. How about yeah, the... I, I think there's this, this uh, tribalism on transference and it, it kind of drives me nuts. Expand on that. Well, does anything in the weight room really transfer to the field? But I guess, guys, you could you could make some arguments that like, but I, I would I it, say it no. might build context and a slight nudge on transference, you know, depending on what you're doing, what plane you're doing it in, or so on and so forth. So we got people that are in these camps, you know, it's got a transfer, you know, it's global. Well, things exist on a spectrum, and you know, it's the same thing in running, you know, like does an athlete knowing how to start and accelerate and run upright transfer to your sport directly? No, especially if they don't have COD skills, but it does give context. It does teach awareness. It does create a talking point about gross errors and return to play principles. So if you're in a return to play, and they get released from the clinic. Are you going to throw them on the pitch where it's super heavy, high cognitive perceptual stress? No, you're going to do some bridge building. And that's where the tribalists get lost. Like it's absolute or nothing. How about the negative footstep then? Is that negative or is it the body being faster with stretch shortening? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Can you... Two point stance. So you're not like, you know, as you're working through the spectrum of all the different starts, if I'm in this two point stance and rather than some of the falling starts that I've seen there, it's okay. You know, just fully static two point and I'm going to take this front foot. I move it backwards to then propel myself forward is. Oh, okay. So false step. Yes. Yeah. Well, I fought this battle for decades with baseball coaches and running bases. You know, do they do a crossover step? Is it a static front leg propulsion? Is it false step and all of that? And through years of people trying to jig around with that, you know, the big consensus was, you know, whatever they're doing, leave them alone. <laughs> Just get them really good at how they do it. I, I agree with you. Like if they're, if it's what they're doing, let them do it because it's clearly their body trying to be faster. Like same thing with a crossover pushover, right? Well, for me, ergonomically, my first step 
you know, in this analysis, it's okay, there's a lot of noise on what they're doing on this first step, maybe the second step is a result of what they're doing there. So there's going to be a lot of chaos in the data. So let's go to the third step and see how fast they are and what's going on from third, fourth to fifth. Let's look at that zone and see if any manipulation early changes that zone. That would be a bridge building process on data. So again, I think it's myopics. You know, people are doing all this analysis on excursion of the first step. That's a variable, but the net is, hey, on steps three, four, and five, are they faster with one style versus the other? That might have more merit. Yeah, that's a lot like anytime you see an athlete that may be running a five or a 10 yard run for a team sport athlete, but they kind of like diving to, to win that 10 yard. It's like, listen, we're just doing these to prepare you to run further. You're actually kind of messing up what we're looking to be doing down the road. Yeah. You, you know, good athletes cheat the system. They're master manipulators. So, you know, a lot of the best combine people on these stupid tests they do there, they just teach kids how to cheat that test. A hundred percent. If they wanted it to be good, they would be using, um, they'd be running on a force plate, you know, field, they would be jumping on a force plate. There wouldn't be any of that, right? Like, no. speaking of that, <clears throat> the 1080s and how kind of prominent they've gotten in team sports and track and field, is this a good or a bad thing in your opinion? <laughs> uh -oh. Well, <clears throat> sex sells, right? Amen. Yeah. So you buy a $10,000 unit and it looks all jazzed up and you got an iPad with all kinds of data and people and the Numbers players are like all in my like this is high tech and you can show variance and you're like wow you know it's it's detecting you know I got my right nose hair a little bit out of alignment so I stepped right or whatever it's it's fantastic stuff. In seriousness, you know people have been doing resistance runs for centuries. You know, running uphill, pull it. And Jesse Owens ran with a tire tied behind him. I think what 1080 does, or uh, Muscle Lab, like in Europe or whatever, it gives you consistent, uniform resistance, measurable. If you want to go into overspeed, it's way safer than using bungee cords or pulley systems or whatnot. So I think the ability to incrementally control load or stress is improved with those kind of units, whether it's muscle lab or 1080 or, you know, any of the various uh, entities out there. I think the art of it is, you know, what are you working on? You know, the why. So if it's the first few steps and you're using heavier loads, great. But if you're working on an extended acceleration pattern like 30, maybe that load is negative. So trying to figure out what is the right load for the right task or the right purpose, the right why of what we're working on, you know, is pretty important. And I think that's where a lot of people get lost in the weeds. And, you know, in America, we're more is better. So if we can do it heavier, uh, it must be improving things. Well, heavier might improve your excursion angle in your first few steps, but it may not help after that at all. Where lighter may not improve those, but it may help you transitioning to an upright and some upright running. So I think the first stop for me is why are, what's the objective today? What are we working on? What distance and what skills are we working on? And that makes the decision on load. 
And we do a lot of uh, variance loads on acceleration runs, and we want to see how they're handling loads. So if we got 18 kilos versus 12 versus 6 versus 2, you know, are there any big changes in these uh, kinematic positions that we're seeing? Because that might give us an insight on what their bias is or where maybe we need to do a little bit more work. So say we got an athlete that's excellent at lighter loads, but a little bit heavier loads, they change what their body is doing to keep it going. Well, that kind of gives us an insight on where they're biased to solutions when they're in doubt or they're challenged. Yeah, because they're going to go where they feel comfortable, what they've done the, the most. You're going to use your best bullet. So we see a lot of uh, field court sport guys have a lot of shin roll and knee drop on that front leg to start. Well, why are they doing that? Well, that puts a huge stretch on the quadriceps because their best bullet is the quadriceps. They don't know how to fire the glutes and the erectors. They know how to fire the quads. So they have a lot of shin roll, drop that knee and get a great stretch on that quad and bam, they hit a nice line and you're like, See that line of attack? It was awesome, but the pelvis didn't go anywhere. It actually went down before it came up, and it didn't travel very far because you spent all that time dropping instead of being productive. So the net looked really good, but if you dig down into the nuances, you didn't go anywhere. And that wouldn't happen unless you were looking at that third, fourth, fifth step like you talked about. Yep. Now, why, like... You know, even for me, I feel, I'm feeling stupid listening to him. Like, son of a gun, why didn't I think about that? Like, why, why aren't, why isn't that being talked about as much? Well, maybe it is, and I'm just the idiot. Like, that's fine. no, like, no, you no, can, no. <laughs> you can say this that. is common. I'm, I mean, this is a space I work in. I, I think it starts with first of all the resistance to a biomechanical model and the bandwidth allowances in that model. So people don't know where what the body segments and postures and angles are at various steps in a run. So if you don't have a model that you're analyzing against, why would you analyze it? Makes sense. So if you got a guy doing a 45 degree cut and you don't know what those first three or four steps out of the cut look like on a good mover versus a bad mover where you're analyzing components, then why would you even try to analyze if you don't know what they are? You're going to come up with a bandwidth for like your hammer analogy. There's one way to swing a hammer with the, the bandwidth. Is there a hammer for changing direction on all sports? Or are you going to make a band? Are you going to make a bandwidth within each sport and then each position? Or is it just going to be relative to size and body weight and relative strength? Oh, uh, yes. All the above. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I think you're going to have general postures, segmental positions and angles that address all sport. And then the width of that bandwidth might be sport development stage. It might be injury compensation. It might be time of season, you know, it could be health or, you know, all kinds of things. So the bandwidth is what fluctuates, but the model line doesn't fluctuate, if you will. Oh, that's, that's again, something to think about because you're right. Like I'm, I'm, as we're talking, I'm thinking about like, okay, yeah, if we're doing a 45 degree upcut, uh, the first thing I'm looking at is anticipating when they make that change in direction. And I want to see steps one and two and which way they're going. But after that, if you're in a team sport setting, you're probably like looking at the next athlete go. So you're not even actually watching your athletes do steps three through five, let alone wondering what it looked like. 
Yeah, well, I think we get caught up in early payday. You know, if those first two steps out of the cut look good, we're job done. How do we balance that with the same thing that being taught of like, okay, if within a kinematic sequence and understanding like, hey, if somebody did A, B, I, I'm actually answering my own question. Like, okay, within the the um, the lift, if somebody was at the bottom, the mid and the top, and that's what they looked like throughout it, probably pretty good. Well, we're only looking at the first two steps. We're not looking at the rest of it. So I, I answered my own question as I was. Yeah, I, I, and people go, oh, you're doing my head in. This is beyond my pay grade. Strength coaches do a great job in the weight room. You got starting postures and angles. You got mid-lift postures and angles, and you got finish angles and then catching angles. You have a model in there, and you have a bandwidth. So if you got a middle school kid, the bandwidth's a little wider on some of those, you know, where if you're training Olympic-level Olympic lifter, the bandwidth is very narrow, right? Mm -hmm. So we already have that tool. PTs have that tool in the clinic. Like, you don't see any PT say, well, just do the rubber band thing how you feel. <laughs> They're like, okay, put your wrist here, your fingers here, go to here, feel this tension, go to here. They have a model. But then when it comes to the field, it's like, oh, there's no model. There's and, and as getting, again, full circle, getting back to what you said, there is a growing model for sprinting and upright running, the linear stuff, but there is less and less on the decelerative and the change in direction work. Yeah, that's, that's why I'd encourage people to look into Damien and, and guys like that that are doing pioneer work there. And it's a blue ocean right now because there's not as many people doing it. Well, you can build a mousetrap. Everybody's bitching about building their business. Well, you know, add a layer to your toolbox. Um, as you were talking about, you know, the different, the the 1080 or the other uh, product. And again, that wasn't just them. It's any of these new tech things out on the field. Um, from somebody that has been around and seen this field evolve for so long, looking back you know, in the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands and the tens and now the twenties, like it would be impossible for me to be like, Oh, figure out the, like globally, what have been the good and the bad. And just to hear from somebody that isn't, whether you're going to say it or not, that is a giant in this field. Like just talk about the evolution and the pros and the cons in the weight room and on the field. Well, you, you remember the genome project. The movie? No, you know, where they figured out the the genome, the DNA and all of that, and it was going to revolutionize medicine. Yes. Well, that was 30 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. How are we doing? It depends on who you ask and where you <laughs> ask it, right? <laughs> well, I think it's the same thing with tech. Like, it's how you use it, when you use it. You know, a lot of people collect data and it just sits on a server. You know, like, can you get buy-in from the athlete, from the coaching members and whatnot? So it's not just enough to have a, a technology instrument that collects really reliable, valid data. It's like, what do you do with it? What are the action points? How do you teach it? How do you build bridges between stages of evolution, you know, using that technology? So I think the gap is, is in pedagogy. We don't know how to teach with the data that we're being received. Because we're getting bogged down by the results or because we don't know what we're teaching? Probably both. Yeah. Because there's probably not enough people, though, doing the – because the reason I ask this question is – from somebody like you with the background at, you know, LSU and the colleges and then with track and USA track and field, like 
there was no other technologies. There was none of this. Oh, I don't feel good. And this number tells me not to do it. You, it was like, Hey, we're, we're going to lift, we're going to run. And it's okay. If you don't feel like great, you, you kind of just had to work through it all. So you had to learn and earn your stripes for lack of a better term. So you understand how to coach it better, which was why I was wondering like your take on it all, because it was like, Hey, look, we're, we're going to do some of these basic and just build general strength in the weight room as we continue to get better running on the field well i i kind of look at it as a pyramid so on the bottom layer is kind of like physical literacy and the middle layer is like global sport literacy and then the top layer is sports specific literacy and i think we get caught up in the top part of that pyramid you know we want to be sexy modern transference everything about the sport and we don't mm. really survey and analyze global sport literacy or even physical literacy. Like you can argue what physical literacy is, but most people identify 12, 16 boxes uh, of physical literacy, catching, kicking, you know, lunging, running, skipping, or what have you. I, I got pro athletes that are physically illiterate. <laughs> like motor morons they can't crawl walk like any of those kind of being a good healthy athlete before being a good specific to that sport athlete you're talking yeah so donovan bailey was a sprinter that i coached olympic champion world record he couldn't skip but he could run <laughs> like we tried two years to teach him how to skip the various skipping activities we have on our menu and finally just gave up it was embarrassing it was more trouble than worth trying to battle that. That's awesome. <laughs> but did you, in the process, did he become a worse sprinter or was he still good at sprinting? No, he was still good at sprinting because there were other menu items that had higher ROI, right? Mm -hmm. So that's uh another thing with all this data is what is the ROI if we make action on this data? And I remember seeing some of your videos, though, that you were doing a lot of this. You were doing aggregate data in you know old school notebooks like i'm taking notes here with you like you were writing everything down and then kind of revisiting it during their runs no yeah. t scores z scores you know like basic stats can get you a long way i don't have to have p values to get develop an action point <laughs> yeah your p value doesn't have to be greater than 0 0.05 or whatever it has to be in uh well, it's kind of in a realm called trend analysis, you know, so, you know, like how does an air traffic controller look at that screen and see all of this stuff going on and make educated decisions on whether to slow down a plane, speed up a plane or redirect a plane. That's trend analysis. And that's what we are as coaches. We see a lot of information out there. And are we looking for trends or patterns? People kind of downgrade anecdotal data collection, but most scientific studies have sprung from lots of anecdotal observations that have spurned this research. So I think anecdotal uh, data collection and case studies probably get short shift in my opinion. How are you going about with the air traffic controller analogy? It, it brought me back to some of those videos that I've seen you put out before where you do have multiple athletes running and you are looking through all of that and you do have that art of it. What would be your suggestion to coaches that are either working in a team setting where we talked before, like, Hey, there's so many people that get through that. They miss steps four, five, six, whatever, versus, you know, giving and seeing all those different steps and attentions that you've been able to, to provide to your athletes. Not only that you've talked about, but we've seen in these videos that you've put out. 
Well, it's a kind of an analogy I use. I, I, I talk to people dealing with big numbers about mailboxing athletes in the group. Yeah, there it is, mailboxing. So you got beginners, you got experienced or whatnot, and injured, or it could be a virus. So at the academy, we got kids that are front side bias. We got kids that are backside bias. We got kids that are postural nightmares. And so we're doing the same warm-up, but the, the monitoring and the cueing of each mailbox is different. What if your bad posture and uh, bad front side? Pick the worst virus. You know, which one's the biggest driver of dysfunction? Um, another question that I got here. Sorry, my son is uh, very interested in seeing himself on a screen. What made you get out of college? Uh, politics and bureaucracy. Kind of sounds like why I want to get out of it too. <laughs> well, but then you know you, you you fight silos. Like people have their turf and they don't want to give it up and they don't want to you know interface. Like horizontal integration is a foreign idea in most university settings. And you know it's the stay in your lane motif. You know here's my silo. You're not allowed in here. And then, you know, just the bureaucracy at the end, I was probably doing eight hours a week of paperwork just to coach, you know, compliance forms and phone call logs and recruiting visits. And, you know, it just, you know, I like to teach and be out in the field. And I, I was doing less than that. I was getting called into meetings and being brought on the red carpet. Like, oh, you can't touch your athletes. You're not certified. So I got certified in massage therapy. Okay, you can only do certain things. You can't uh, manipulate the joint. I'm like, okay, I'm doing massage on the the quad and the calf, and it just happens that the knee moves or whatever. Playing those kind of games. Do you not have to then have and play the same politics and bureaucracies when you're working and, and being called in to work with a certain group of athletes or clients or whatnot? No, because I tell them up front, here, here's what I do, here's how I do it. If if you want that service, fine. If not, then I, I'm lucky at age 70. I can kind of pick and choose who I work with and when and how long and what I do. Amen. But I mean, how long have you been like 80, 50 years? 50 years now. Like that's what I was saying, 80s, 90s. Like as a, I was like, that's five decades. Yeah, and when you're 70, you're allowed to be a crusty old man that's kind of cynical and skeptical. It's kind of that society accepted, you know. If you're 40, it's a little different game. You got to earn the stripes to be a crusty old booger. What was, so when we were uh, talking to get this scheduled, you had said, I don't know if, you know, people are going to like what I have to say. What was initially the thing that you were thinking about that people wouldn't want to, like, why would somebody, again, and from my perspective, like, what would somebody not want to hear you talk about? Well, the biggest blowback we get, you know, in social media following or feedback loops or whatnot is the tribalism stuff. Like, you know, I'm in this camp and I disagree with you, so all your shit's garbage. I mean, but that's like, it, we could get into a whole different, like a whole nother hour podcast of like, that's not just strength and conditioning. That's like the whole world in that, like that, that could yeah. just be my 70 year old soul with you actually being 70 years, years old and we could like that's a, a bigger systemic problem no yeah yeah but I, I mean it's rampant in our industry you know like when i started there was no such thing as an atc there wasn't no i thought their you, professions older than ours from what everybody 
not much. It was kind of a first aid guy or an ankle tape guy or whatnot. It was usually a coach that took the weekend course from Kramer on how to wrap ankles and elbows and how to, uh, you know, keep the ice machine running and put ice in a bag and fill the whirlpool. That was the guy. Uh-huh. And then strength coach, I remember when Boyd started, you know, the project with NSCA, you know, that wasn't, and now both of those groups are monster influencers and in industries that really direct the ship on a lot of fronts. Why can't they get along? Turf. That it? Yeah. Like, it just seems so simple. Like the, the guy that I yeah, was. But see, it's human nature. You don't want to be exposed, right? So if you get in a horizontal discussion and debate, you're going to find out that some people know some things and don't know other things and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden they're exposed. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah, for the people that don't want to grow, I suppose. You're right. Well, what, what do you think that number is? <laughs> I'm not worried about that number. <laughs> I want to educate those that actually do want to grow, right? Because like that's when you keep the athlete at the heart of it all, right? Like then, then you're, it doesn't matter because it's well, it trips me out. Everybody's always saying we're athlete centered and we're for the, the welfare of the athlete. And then you look at the decision-making process and you go, really? Yeah. That sounds nice on paper though. Right? Yeah. It's, it's on every banner in every locker room. <laughs> Coach, I could talk to you for hours. It's been an hour now and I want to respect the fact that you're going on the road tomorrow and you're going to, be time zone traveling so yeah thank you very much um like i said i could talk with you forever so <clears throat> if there's anything else you want to leave any of our listeners with i would be more than happy to let you have the last say but other than that just i appreciate you taking the time to talk to us well it's, you know, i'm kind of leave with what i tell our interns and, and our young mentees is like stay curious and build a diverse network get out of your bubble Thank you very much, Coach. I uh, appreciate you and have a great rest of the day. All right. Be safe. Mm-hmm.